Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Today, the prophet Isaiah, in our Old Testament reading, speaks to something that at first glance probably doesn't seem so relevant to our lives today. Fasting. I don't need a show of hands, but if we were to take a poll about how many of us have had a routine and devotional fasting practice in our life, I'm sure the answer would be nearly no one. And yet it is fasting that God uses to speak to us today. And it is fasting as it is found in Isaiah chapter 58 that is in fact very relevant to our lives today. No, not because this reading from Isaiah only ever occurs in the church year on Super Bowl Sunday or the Sunday after, to try and remind those who had too much salsa or buffalo wings or little football-shaped desserts that they could use a little fasting in their life. No, it's relevant because it speaks to the hearts of those who come to worship God. And it speaks to the realities of our world, our church, and our lives. We read in Isaiah 58, God admit that publicly and outwardly, externally, the people seem to seek him daily. And publicly and externally, they seem to look like a people who would delight to know his ways and to know his laws. As if they were a society that did righteousness in the eyes of the Lord. And they have a complaint. They want to know, why have we fasted, God? Why have we humbled ourselves? And you're not seeing it. Why is it that you're not paying any attention to us? And then God reminds them he's been paying very close attention to them. Reminding them that you who fast and humble yourself, you can't even get through the day of fasting before you go back to seeking your own desires and conducting your daily business, including treating your workers, your employees, or those of a lower social standing like oxen or mules, like beasts of burden. And you who think you're so humble before the Lord, do you not think that I see that as soon as you're done with your fasting, you go right back to the quarreling and the fighting, the arguing, the anger, the turmoil, and the strife, that was also very present in your life before your worship observance began. And maybe we're forced to ask, who would go to worship God and then resort to such hypocritical actions? Who would be outwardly pious and appearing righteous, and then once they're out of their worship environment, treat those they come across in life like little better than animals? Or who would come to worship in order that perhaps their outwardly acts might cover up the truth of their own ungodliness in their life that they're trying to hide from God? Or who would come to worship to simply fulfill one half of a quid pro quo relationship that they've built up in their mind with God? And God does correct their thinking saying, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? 
Is that what you're going to call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And in English, we lose a little bit of this, but in the Hebrew grammar, the way this sentence is is set up, there's no answer even needed. The answer is automatically and emphatically absolutely not. And then God even gives them an idea of what it might look like to have a fast that was pleasing to the Lord, saying, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, your friends and family in a time of need. Perhaps we could take comfort in this is, seems to be a 8th century Israelite problem. A problem for the people in Jerusalem. That this hypocritical behavior of acting righteous in public outward ways when the reality is so, so different, well, that's just kind of an Old Testament problem. Surely that wouldn't be the type of problem that we'd struggle with today in the 21st century. We'd never go back to God when the going gets tough, only to get angry at him because he doesn't give us an immediate reprieve of the consequences of our own behavior. And I'm sure we'd never do something like lose interest in God by being wooed away by the desires of our flesh or even the attractions of the world. And as a society, I'm sure we wouldn't ever do something like write in God we trust on our currency and then spend so much of our lives trying to get that currency into trust that we end up taking years off our God-given life. And I'm sure we'd never be the type of society that publicly advocates for singing God bless America and then secretly or sometimes even not so secretly hope that God only blesses those Americans who have worked hard enough to earn a good life for themselves. And we wouldn't be the type of people who would fight tooth and nail for something like school prayer and then in those same meetings in front of those same boards ignore or even oppose programs to bring lunches and breakfast to children in homeless or impoverished situations. No, this just is an 8th century problem, isn't it? Or, of course, we could stop lying to ourselves and realize that what God speaks to in Isaiah 58, in the hearts of the people, in the hearts of those who come to worship him, and even in the hearts of those who live in the world, is something that is incredibly relevant to our lives. If you think this is relevant, wait till you see what surrounds it. In Isaiah chapter 56, Isaiah speaks about the politicians and the leaders of Isaiah's day. And imagine this, they were corrupt. They put on the false pretense of having good judgment to pursue and increase their own interests. And they did not help and unite the people, but they divided them into idolatrous factions and pointed them away from God. And in Isaiah 57, Isaiah speaks to the society of Judah, those in Jerusalem, saying, you have abandoned the ways of the Lord, criticizing them for widespread and celebrated sexual immorality, even specifically mentioning the sacrifice of children's lives 
to pagan gods and cults associated with that promiscuity. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah looks out at the world he sees and notices how much injustice and oppression and suffering he sees. And yet, in the midst of that, and in the midst of the terrible and sometimes humbling reality of our own 21st century, and in the midst of our own sinful lives, listen to what else God has to say in these sections of Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, God says he is preparing a way, a way of comfort and of healing and of restoration. And in our reading of Isaiah 58, the Lord says he will guide you continually, satisfy your desires. You shall be like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And in Isaiah 59, God says that he looked out and he saw that no man, no human being could intercede so that he brought his own arm and brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him and that a a redeemer would come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from their transgression. This is my covenant, this is my promise, says the Lord. If you recall that list of things that God uses to call out the sin in people's lives in Isaiah 58, that he calls for a fast to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to bring bread to the hungry, to bring the homeless into a home, to cover the naked, to not hide yourself from those in times of need. Also listen to the list that the suffering servant speaks of in Isaiah 61. The one who would come for his people. In Isaiah 61 we read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those words from Isaiah 61, that's not the only time those exact words occur in the Bible. Because some approximately 800 years later, in a synagogue in Nazareth, a man stood up, walked over to the scroll of Isaiah, unrolled it, found those verses in Isaiah 61 that were just read. And when those people sitting there heard it, it was not just hearing the words of God, but they themselves were beholding the word of God himself, the word made flesh who had come for them. And as Jesus Christ himself looked out at that broken mess of a people sitting in that synagogue, his reactions to those words from Isaiah 61, his reaction is to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in my reading. Perhaps when we reflect on Isaiah 58, it's important to remember that truly it is, thanks be to God, that is not our outward actions, the words we say or the pious activities or things that look righteous that we do upon which we rest our hope. But rather it is God's strong word, is the word made flesh upon which our hope rests. It is God's strong word which bespeaks on us the righteousness that we could never achieve for ourselves. 
It is God's strong word that reminds us that what we look forward to in him is not a fast, but it's a feast. A feast of the lamb and his kingdom which will have no end. And that truly it is thanks be to God that his only begotten son came to bring us that way of healing, that way of comfort, and that way of restoration. Amen. Now may the peace of God which transcends all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We rise to sing 